Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is a really exciting episode. We have Sarah Schulman joining us at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, and Sarah will talk all things about her new book, Let the Record Show, A Political History of Act Up New York, 1987 to 1993. Uh, there are a lot of show notes, so definitely go down to the show notes and whatever platform you're listening to for the podcast. We have ways to connect to Sarah Shulman on social media, how to follow the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, and also a link that goes to our website. And you can actually watch United in Anger that Sarah recommends uh, and a few other resources that come up during the episode. Just a note, there was um, a technical glitch with my co-host, Erica Grumet. So you'll hear me reading questions that Erica was sending to me. So just in case you're wondering um, why Erica is not saying anything during the interview, you know, technical glitches happen. And I really want to thank Sarah Shulman for sticking it out with us here at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. So without further ado, here is Let the Record Show, a conversation with Sarah Shulman. Hi, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I know that Eric and I have been social media blasting uh, this interview experience because we're really excited to be in the presence of Sarah Shulman, who graciously has agreed to give us a one-on-one, -on -one, well, <laughs> two-on-one in this case, interview. So hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us here. Sure. Hi. Uh, so I... First, just wanted to ask, I mean, I know there's so many questions that Erica and I have devised behind the scenes, but we kind of took two different trajectories. So if it's all right with you, I was just going to ask a general question about your methodology, which if you're listening, we're talking about Sarah's book, Let the Record Show. And if I can call it an oral history masterpiece, I'd like to because I do think your methodology, all of the different narratives that you're molding into this nonfiction text, can you maybe explain just how did you, how many hours did you spend? What was the process like? Um, you know, how long were you working on Let the Record Show? Well, I think it starts in 1979. Um, I dropped out of college and I came back to New York. And at that time, there was almost no representation of feminism or gay people in the mainstream media. And so there were these kind of underground newspapers, gay papers and feminist papers in every city. 
really had at least one of each and a whole cadre of journalists. And I became one of them who did not get paid and who were out there uh, carving out our stories and publishing them, you know, for our communities. And I covered women being excluded from experimental drug trials. I covered the city health department closing down the gay bathhouses. And by the time ACT UP was founded in March of 1987, I'd already been covering AIDS for about five years. Then I was asked, so ACT UP, I joined ACT UP in July of 87. And then I left around 92 or 93. There was a split in ACT UP at that time and the organization disintegrated a little bit, although it still exists. Uh, 96 was the protease inhibitors, which are the beginning of the drugs that once you become HIV positive, you can live a full lifespan if you can get access. And then 99 was sort of the internet revolution, which kind of left ACT UP in the dust because we were a pre-internet movement and none of our materials were digitized. So there was a period where you could search ACT UP and find nothing. In 2001, it was the 20th anniversary of the identification of the virus that became known as AIDS. HIV. And I was driving in a car listening to the radio and the guy said, at first America had trouble with people with AIDS, but then they, then they came around. And I knew that wasn't true, you know, that it was not a benevolent uh, move by a dominant group. And that, and actually the truth was that thousands of people fought until the day they died to force the country to change against its will. So my collaborator at that time, Jim Hubbard and I, got a grant from the Ford Foundation. Irvishi Vad, who's an important leader of the gay movement, was working there. And for the next 18 years, we interviewed 188 surviving members of ACT UP New York and put up their interviews on our website, which is actuporalhistory.org. And we've had about over 14 million hits since that time. And Jim preserved about 2000 hours of archival footage. Then in 2012, Jim directed a film called United in Anger, a history of ACT UP, which is available for free at YouTube. And we took that film all over the world, literally carried it. We went to Russia right after the anti-gay laws. We showed it in India, in Brazil, in Palestine, Lebanon. Um, and then, we were looking for somebody who wanted to do something with all the data we had collected uh, and we couldn't find anybody. And then unfortunately, this other kind of history started to emerge, which was this very reductive history that focused on a handful of individuals and attributed to them power that can only be accomplished by coalition. And it was very disturbing not only because it was wrong and because it fits this very obnoxious American trope of like the John Wayne, white male, heroic individual, but also because it's impossible and nothing happens that way. It's a myth. And now that we're in a time in America where change is desperately needed and people want it, it's very important to look back at movements that have been su successful and try to understand why they were. And so it was sort of a state of emergency and we realized that I was gonna to have to do this book. Mm -hmm. So I spent about three years rereading the transcripts of the interviews that I had conducted. And I could see right from the beginning that 
I could not write the book chronologically, that that would not be accurate because so much happened at the same time and the simultaneity of action was an important part of how effective the movement was. And so um, being primarily a novelist, uh, most of my work is as a novelist and most of the books I've published are novels and they run a wide formal gamut. So I have published, you know, sort of mid-list literary realist novels, but I've also published highly experimental novels, both on the, the level of line, as well as in the larger formal uh, strategy of the book. And so I had a lot of skill uh, with formal invention, and I've always felt that the form of a work should come organically from its content. And since the content here was simultaneity, uh, that dictated the form. And so I fortunately was able to handle the material and I created these cohered tropes of single events or themes that when juxtaposed together, I think do give you a sense of how and why ACT UP was effective. Well, thank you for laying all of that out, especially for those listening who are just getting into your work or who are picking up Let the Record Show. And I will plug uh, Rosalind Coleman-Williams, the um, right uh, performer, reader, who um, reads aloud your book. But I, and I think you do, you read the preface, if I remember correctly. But I know there is one specific narrative, if I can bring it up, because it was one that really hit me hard, was the mother and son um, narrative that you discuss and just how psychologically weighing um, the death of her son. Um, can you remind me, Sarah, of the mother's name? Patricia Navarro. Thank you. Yes. So Patricia Navarro was the only parent of a person with HIV in ACT UP. And people need to understand that at this time, um, familial homophobia was cultural culturally the norm and virulent and a force of history. And if the families of people with AIDS had actually gotten involved and advocated for their family members, the epidemic would have had a completely different path. But people with AIDS were abandoned by their families and queer people were abandoned by their families. And so Patricia was a real anomaly. Now her son was Ray Navarro they were from an assimilated Chicano family in California, a working class family. He had gone to art school and come to New York to go to the Whitney program, which at that time was, an in, it still exists, it's an innovative art studies program, but at that time it was working with video, which was uh, something that had been revolutionized by new technology. This is the mid eighties we're talking about. Um, and, he was part of a cadre of artists in ACT UP and he got very, very sick and Patricia came to be with her son. And she was welcomed by the ACT UP community and given places to stay. And Ray was staying with members of ACT UP and she became integrated into ACT UP, uh, really the only parent. And her story is phenomenal. Uh, so there's a whole chapter on their relationship and I looked at it under the rubric of um, harm reduction because harm reduction was one of the philosophical underpinnings of ACT UP. 
broadly. Uh, originally, the concept came out of drug use. The, for people who had drug addictions or the, the status quo at the time was that you were supposed to be abstinent. You were supposed to completely get off drugs. But ACT UP favored needle exchange as a mode of harm reduction, understanding that sometimes people don't get off drugs. And why should they get AIDS if you could avoid it? Hmm. And by giving people clean needles, you can save their lives. Uh, one of the slogans was dead addicts don't recover. So harm reduction was an approach that was like realistic about what people are really like. And ACT UP used harm reduction as an approach to dying and to to illness and many people knew that they were going to die and um, they told the truth about that. And Patricia's relationship with her son was a harm reduction relationship. She, at, at some point, because Ray got very, very sick and he had dementia and all kinds of brain diseases and um, she treated him with reality. Mm. And so it was part of the harm reduction continuum within ACT UP. Well, it was really moving. And I think when you realize that all of these narratives and all of the oral history that you're bringing to bear and to light actually happened, it has a certain psychological weight behind it that I have to keep reminding myself, like these are actual people whose experiences I'm being brought into and the readers being brought into. And I am curious, did you feel a certain, or do you still feel a certain psychological weight to bear when you were telling their stories, even when you were writing, you know, how did, I kept thinking, how is Sarah, you know, working through this um, emotion? Well, I, I felt like I, I had to be very fair hmm. and that this was not my time to say what I thought about everything that happened. This was my time to let people speak about their own experience and how they understood what they did. And there is testimony in there that I don't agree with. And there's some things that I don't even think are actually accurate, hmm. but it was important to get the cacophony of voices and to let, because these are people who changed the world and saved millions of lives and they had never been interviewed and never been historicized. Hmm. You know, my book, I mentioned 140 people and in the back I list 188 people who I had interviewed and that's really just a portion of who was there. So it was important to give people as much space as possible to say how they saw it. And then to see that people contradicted each other and uh, had different takes on things and still disagree to this day is important because we're in a moment where there's a real de-emphasis on disagreement and conflict and difference. Mm -hmm. And there's a real push towards homogeneity and conformity. And that does not work for making change. Change is, real change requires a recognition of difference. And I wanted to show how different people in the same movement could be and still accomplish enormous victories. You mentioned about representation a lot of the way the media tells the story of not only ACT UP, but HIV and AIDS broadly with organizations and the movement. And I do wonder, and this is such a large question, so forgive me, but do you think that media representation now is, especially in pop culture, 
whether it be posed, whether it be um, it's a sin, do you think that they're starting to tell more nuanced conversations or is it still, there's a lot to go in terms of listening to the actual community? I mean, in some arenas, it's slightly improved. Um, like for example, if you look at, like we have the medications, right? So that someone who's HIV infected should be able to live a normal lifespan, but we don't have access to those medications because we don't have national or global healthcare. So if you look at the work of like Linda Villarosa, for example, who's a black lesbian journalist who writes for the New York Times, she shows that black gay men in the US South have a higher rate of HIV infection than any country in the world. So the fact that there is a show that shows black people with HIV is a step forward, right? Because that information was excluded. Now, is that presented historically realistically? That's another story. And you know, it was interesting in Pose, the writers, I guess, didn't know how to come up with a political action because they kept taking ACT UP actions and kind of watering them down. So there showed a, there was a little lack of political um, imagination there, but it's better than the all white version that came before it, although it may be less accurate. As far as it's a sin, um, there were things in there that I really loved. I loved how young everybody was. I loved how free everyone felt when they got out of their homophobic families, um, how fun it was, then the shock of the epidemic. All of that I thought was very realistic, but I hated that everyone who was positive died. I felt like that was ridiculous. And what kind of message is that for a new audience? And the role of the woman was just insane that you have this one woman who has no emotional or sexual life, who's a martyr for everybody else that seemed crazy. And um, the idea of people infecting people being called killing them. I mean, everyone who has HIV was infected by somebody, right? So it's like, it's part of the life cycle. You know, people get infected with HIV. That's, the, that's what happens. All kinds of things happen in life. So that ending on that note, I just felt like, what is the point of that? So we have a long way to go. Yeah, well, and I really enjoyed what you say about angels in America. I mean, I'm very, liter the literariness of it, I've taught angels in America. I really value the dramatization of it and how it, how Kushner, combine so many different characters and their personalities, but I thought you do such a really wonderful job explaining the difference between presenting history and using AIDS as a metaphor, or even- also, yeah. I mean, no work of art should be too big to fail. I mean, there's no, it should, there shouldn't be that there's something that we're not allowed to discuss. What is it actually saying? What are its values? What, are, what is its meaning? You know, so when you have a work of art that's so rewarded and the centerpiece is a gay man abandoning his partner when he gets HIV infected, which let me tell you, almost never happened. And that that becomes the emblematic representation in a culture where straight people are abandoning people with AIDS and families are abandoning people with AIDS and governments 
Um, so it's felt like the opposite of the truth. And, you know, the, there's a reward system in the arts that is worth investigating. Now, I think any artist should write whatever they want. I would not say that anyone should change the way they write, but when once when something is so highly rewarded by a system that cares nothing about the people that it represents, how can it go for decades without having a culture-wide discussion about what is this work actually saying? Yeah. I don't, and it's amazing to me how um, surprising it is to people when we actually talk about what the content is. Yeah, and I'm curious, did you see The Inheritance? No, I didn't. Okay, that was actually, those were the last two parts were the last performances I saw before the pandemic. Um, and I really thought it was an interesting way of showing different generations. So basically it showed a lot of that caretaking and aspects in Angels in America that I feel get dropped. Um, not showing intergenerational queer community growth. And um, even like you said, that couples did stay together mostly um, during the- Well, I uh, think couples is a, is a contemporary term. You know, this was an, a gay libera sexual liberation community. Um, yes, there were couples, but there also was a gay sexual culture that was beyond couples. Hmm. But, um, you know, it was the community that joined together and forced the country to change. Can you speak more to that, Sarah? Sorry, about what you mean about not just couples, like the other dynamic to that. Well, um, we're talking family. about the. What, we're not talking about family, we're not talking about couples. We're talking about, you know, gay liberation and sexual liberation and gay sexual culture, which was a community based sexual culture. And yes, there were many couples, most of them were not monogamous. I mean, rela relationships were not de dependent on a certain um, model of what we understand today. I mean, one of the things that I think has happened is that when the gay community won marriage equality, the campaign for marriage equality really separated AIDS from gay marriage. It pushed AIDS out of gay politics to the side and it implied that gay marriage was gonna be the corrective to AIDS because it implied that gay marriage was gonna be monogamous and it was gonna control gay male sexuality. And none of the poster boys for a gay marriage, you know, the couples who'd been together forever and all of that came out as HIV positive during those campaigns. AIDS was pushed to the side. So there was really this, mm, subtle undertone message that gay sexual culture is bad and that straight sexual culture is correct. And that if gay people would imitate that, they would stay alive. This was the, the hidden message through a lot of the marriage campaign. Mm -hmm. But we're talking way before then when gay marriage was not even a, a, a real demand of the movement and was considered a very, very radical concept and was not really on the table. Yeah. So in a way, kind of how homonormativity, that jargony phrase has really taken hold of the American culture. Of, well, it, it's yeah. happened to other groups. I mean, you know, if you look at Jews after the Holocaust, right after that period, 
you have things like people getting nose jobs, you know, very common, right? This Jewish women getting their noses reduced or people changing their names, you know, after there's a historic cataclysm, often there's an assimilationist tendency, even if it's unconscious, because the message is clear, even if it's uh, not stated that you're not safe and, the, and that the culture doesn't care about you and that your difference is a problem. I mean, even today, you know, the last, we got gay marriage became legal way before job protection. So arenas in which gay people act like straight people are arenas in which more protection is offered. And arenas in which queer people are different are the arenas that are still, uh, we're still vulnerable. Yeah, and Erica did also wanna follow up about what you're talking about, Sarah, with the push for marriage equality. Was it a stabilizing factor in the gay con- in the gay community and how maybe conformity and social approval are baked into that? Well, it has pros and cons, and some of the pros have cons. I mean, these are all very complex, nuanced phenomena, but if AIDS had happened after gay marriage and privatization, and we were divided into private family units, we never would have been able to respond to AIDS as effectively because we didn't, that movement was dependent on having a community-based identification. So, you know, people already had community acknowledgements and community connections and identities, community-based identities, and it was not privatized. Um, Now, for example, you know, with familial homophobia, a lot of gay people had to leave their hometowns or leave their families and come into a more mixed community. They're a more racially mixed community, although still racist, but more mixed than they would have been in if they had stayed straight in their hometown or in a more class mixed queer community. And with privatized marriage and parenthood and all of that, many people were then let back into their families of origin. So there's almost like a white reconciliation process where there's a return to the white family and inclusion with the white family and going to the family events and going back to church with the family and all of that. And taking your resources, your financial resources, your creativity and your care and your love out of that community group relationship and back into whiteness or back into the class that you came from or whatever. You know, so it it is a more polarizing, in a sense, um, result. Yeah, well, and when you're saying that there's certain narratives, especially the gay white male narrative that's told around um, AIDS activism, um, that Hollywood is really susceptible to it. But I would say in the way, too, that in literature, there's the... um, gay narrative that always ends in a death or that was a trope that happened a lot. And maybe why do you think that that is such a selling point for the mainstream? Because when you resist, they want you to be punished. You know, it's like every movie with a lesbian, she died at the end or, you know, um, that was the, they want to be sure that you can't live without them and you can't build your own you know 
And I still wonder, I don't feel like we're there yet in Absolutely. Hollywood representation at all. And really in almost any representation. I mean, even lesbian fiction is very, very marginalized and there, and most presses don't have lesbian novels and the editors don't know how to edit them and the books are not widely read. They, you know, they're considered things that people can't relate to or shouldn't try to grapple with. And that's, that's broad. I've been writing lesbian novels for 37 years and I can tell you that there are times when there's a, a significant number of books in print and that's usually because there are senior editors who are lesbian and are willing to acquire books that are cutting edge and difficult and work with the authors and create them. But when you have a period where those people aren't there, there's almost nothing. And then you get younger people in the publishing industry who are not used to the material and don't know how to work with it and can only embrace the most conventional structures. And then it becomes very re regressive. Um, and that's still true. Yeah. So is there a certain, you know, for those out there who are trying to get especially LGBTQ plus literature out there, has there been a certain strategy that's worked for you with certain publishing, self-publishing, certain presses? No, I've been in every kind of press. I've been at the most uh, elite corporate presses. I've been at community-based presses. I've been at university presses. I've been published in Canada. I've done everything. I've had the whole experience. And it's, it's so fragile for lesbian content that it really depends on individuals who are in gatekeeping positions just taking the chance, having the integrity to actually sit down with the writer and talk about the work and why is it scary and what are you trying to say here and not being afraid of something new. And then, you know, and those people are few and far between. They always have been, you know, it gets back to like what kind of person joins ACT UP. You know, it's like most people in power are in power for a reason. They make institutions feel comfortable and you can only go so far that way. And it's always been that way. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's a good segue because Erica is actually curious what ACT UP, what other um, movements before ACT UP did ACT UP learn from or maybe incorporate certain strategies from? Was there well, a specific model? I mean, I go into this in depth in the book. Um, you know, there's no such thing as a discrete movement. Every movement is influenced by previous movements. Uh, the history of the gay movement has been deceptive because people think it's discreet, but actually many people came from previous movements where they were in the closet. And the reason that there was an, uh, an autonomous gay movement in the first place is because other movements in the left would not accept queer people. So there's a history of gay people being kicked out of the Communist Party, for example, or Bayard Rustin being um, sidelined in the civil rights movement or lesbian purges throughout the history of the feminist movement. And so gay people were forced into a movement if they wanted to be out, be forced into an autonomous movement, but they were influenced by earlier movements. So for example, in ACT UP, most of the people were born in the 40s, 50s and 60s who were in ACT UP. And so as children, even though they, they, we now know that there are queer children and that children have queer feelings and queer identities, that was not acknowledged at the time. So if you're a queer child in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, you don't know that there's a gay movement. You don't know that there's going to be a gay community for you. But you do see Black resistance 
on television. You see black people resisting the police. You see black people doing direct action, doing nonviolent civil disobedience. You see images of it in Life magazine or Jet magazine, or maybe someone in your family is involved in that movement. And this had a huge impact on those queer generations. Later, you know, I when I was researching the book, I went back to Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail published in 1964, written in 1964, where he famously lays out his definition of direct action. And you can see that it is exactly what ACT UP did. Even though we never discussed him, we never discussed that article, we never talked about it, but people had internalized this, these tactics, I think from their early childhood experiences of identifying with some group of people in resistance or coming from black family. Um, so that's one very important source. Another is that Although ACT UP was a predominantly white gay male organization, most of those men had very little political experience. The older men had been in gay liberation, but most of the younger ones had not been politically active. The women and people of color in ACT UP tended to come from earlier movements. So there were significant individuals who came from the women's uh, feminist women's health movement, the reproductive rights movement, the women's peace movement. And they brought with them very concrete strategies which were conveyed to the organization through teach-ins that became centerpieces of ACT UP's politics. So for example, I talk about someone like Marion Bonsoff who had been in a feminist women's health clinic in Gainesville, Florida. And she participated in a teach-in on the concept of patient-centered politics. And that became the centerpiece of ACT UP that people with AIDS are the experts and that the movement was held, constructed from the point of view of people with AIDS. Similarly, Jamie Bauer came from the women's peace movement and brought tactics of nonviolent civil disobedience and nonviolent civil disobedience training into ACT UP. Um, there was people who came from Latin American student movements. This was a time of fascist dictatorships in Latin America. And there were people who have been active in the Mexico City student movement, for example, and have brought political thinking with them to act up. And so in all these ways, the movement was influenced. Thank you. No, I'm just so glad you laid that out. Um, and, you know, because Sarah does teach at the College of Staten Island, right? Um, which I think is a CUNY. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That... It is interesting because I sometimes I feel this tension of activism and academics. Does that ever enter into even when you were writing Let the Record Show? Is there a certain tension that you think still exists with those theorizing on campuses and those in activist communities? Oh. I mean, first of all, I'm not a real academic. You know, I never went to graduate school. I teach fiction writing. So I'm in a whole other world and I never went through any of that. Um, but CUNY is a real hot mess and whatever theories you have, they go out the window because it's a survival mode for faculty, staff and students at CUNY. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we could extend that beyond CUNY uh, just because I'm at SUNY. Uh, and yeah, the universities are in an interesting place right now to put it lightly. Um, but I know too, um, Erica was really curious about when we got into the discussion of literature and recognized how almost all of her canon of queer literature when she was growing up came from gay men. And it seems like it speaks to your point, Sarah, 
about like what narratives existed in the publishing field? Well, there were, there's a lot of lesbian fiction that's been published, you know, for a hundred years, but it didn't get elevated in the same way. Um, if you look, for example, at the Lambda Literary Awards, which is I think 36 year old gay book awards, and you look at the finalists in men's fiction and women's fiction every year, you'll see that the men's fiction is published by the highest corporate presses. And the women's fiction usually comes from small not-for-profit presses. And it doesn't have anything to do with the quality of the work. It has to do with sexism. I mean, it's obvious, but you know, the, the work has always been there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm not sure, do you know Pamela Sneed's poem, Born Freeze? No, I know Pam. Oh, do you? Oh, okay. Well, um, the poem Born Freeze, it's one that I'm using in my queer poetry course, but it's about, um, has a stanza about ACT UP and AIDS activism. Oh, yeah. It's from, yeah. it's from her most recent book. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. And representation of the queer BIPOC community. Um, and I am excited to see that there is you know, from Pam's work, but other writers, there is now like this growing queer liberation canon in a way. Um, I don't know. Do you think that's fair to call it? That's. Uh, been, I mean, it's been there from the beginning. I mean, there, you know, Joan Larkin, who's a lesbian poet, says that American poetry is gay and lesbian poetry. Hmm. You know, poetry has always been this special sphere in which queer writers could work because it's never been a profit-driven sphere. So yeah, I think it's it's always been there and certainly um, the AIDS crisis did take many of the most important gay male writers of color. Um, to, it did take their lives, but those books do exist. Uh, the Road Before Us by a Soto Saint, which I think is uh, probably the most important early collection of gay Black male poets, and um, Joseph Beam's book, Brother to Brother, and there's quite a bit of work by people who passed away, as example, people who died of AIDS. But since then, there's been a whole new cat, you know, growth of American poetry, and it, it, it's a field that is more open. Yeah. Well, Erica said Essex Hemphill is one of her um, largest poetic influences. So, yeah. Well, if you look at um, if you Google on uh, if you look on YouTube for outright uh, O U T W R I T E nineteen ninety AIDS and the responsibility of the writer, you will find Little Me thirty years ago and Essex Hemphill on a panel together at the keynote, doing the keynote address uh, for the opening of Outright. Wow, wow. And I mean, I think this is just because everyone who knows me, Sarah knows I'm very obsessed with geography and setting of just people's lives. I know you get into it a little in Let the Record Show, but maybe because as you said, this isn't really your memoir or you know, you're inserting yourself all the time. I'm just curious. So you were born in Manhattan? I was born in 1958 in New York. In New and my York. mother was born in Brooklyn. Yeah. Okay. Do you feel that growing up in New York influenced you joining ACT UP in any way? Well, 
ACT UP New York was the first ACT UP, right? It's the mothership. And as I said, I was already in the AIDS world before ACT UP was even formed. So I, I think it was inevitable that I would be there. But I had been politically active before. I was in the reproductive rights movement. Uh, yeah. And um, OK, so now we're turning the corner a little into our modern day, because I have to say, not only Erica, but myself and so many who knew we were going to speak with you, Sarah, said you have to ask her about the parallels with the pandemic right now, um, or maybe, you know, the kind of activism that's happening in a grassroots way right now with um, systemic racism, um, undocumented immigrants, um, the climate change crisis, like all of these different intersecting grassroots coalitions. Do you feel that their ACT UP is a lesson for that grassroots work and tells us about what to do right now? Well, one of the big great takeaways from ACT UP is that um, movements that have radical democracy in which people are not forced to agree or are not pushed into picking one analysis or all agreeing on one strategy, but movements that are big tent movements that allow for difference have a better chance of being successful. And given how many different communities are in struggle right now, uh, forcing people into full agreement is obviously not going to work. So the more flexible we are, and you know, I think that you have to have a bottom line. ACT UP had a statement of unity, which was direct action to end the AIDS crisis. So if you were doing direct action as opposed to social service provision to end the AIDS crisis, basically you could do it. And you know, we have to have bottom line about what our values are, but being flexible and standing shoulder to shoulder is very important for building new movements. Yeah, and I know there's, I've been very out about taking Descovy every day. Um, I started that about a year, no, two years ago now. Um, and do you think that the new advances with PrEP um, offers a new way of thinking about um, prevention or even harm reduction strategies? Certainly. I mean, you know, PrEP should be available to everyone who wants it. Um, but what's interesting about PrEP is that if everybody who was positive had access to the standard of care treatment right now, then they would become virally suppressed and they would no longer be biologically capable of infecting anybody. So the huge market that Gilead has for PrEP is really predicated on people not getting standard of care treatment and remaining infectious. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's it fits into the whole greedy pharma thing. And we're seeing that with the coronavirus. You know, you know, we know that the treatments for people who are HIV positive exist, but people can't get them. And here we are in a situation where poor countries cannot get existing vaccine. And the rich countries are hoarding the vaccine. Of course, half of our country is insane, anti-vaxxer, Christian fundamentalist, nutcase, gun lovers, whatever. But, um, you know, the vaccines are, so we're being told by WHO, hey, rich countries stop hoarding and let's, so clearly not only do we need national healthcare, we need international healthcare. We need global healthcare systems where every person in the world has access to the existing standard of care and stop being, we need to stop being controlled by 
pharmaceutical greed. And what's interesting is there are some people in the government now who hold those views, like AOC, my favorite person in Congress, who has been very clear and vocal that you know um, medical greed is unethical and shouldn't be part of government. Uh, so it's exciting to see some of these young people of color who've been elected to Congress and have really humane perspectives. Yeah. So there is an optimism. Hope well, it's not, I'm not saying it's inevitably going to get better, but the thing is, you can always see how it could be better. Like, I look at New York City and I see that if we had 500,000 affordable housing units, you know, the whole city would be in a renaissance and so much suffering would stop. And we have numbers, or, you know, that if we could expand rent control, if we had commercial rent control, if people were fined for keeping their properties vacant, you know, if we had a city that was based on people's needs, it's, it's incredibly possible. It's just a matter of political will. So it's important to, when you have solutions that are reasonable and winnable and doable to always say what they are. Because the only reason we don't have them is because a very small group of people are very sick with greed. Mm, yeah. Yeah. The corporate greed is unfortunately ruling the ruling class. Um, and well, I'm definitely envisioning now that future that you've put into my mind. So I hope we do get there. Um, and right, we just had breaking news about new vaccines that could be possible with HIV prevention. Again, though, do you, are you concerned, Sarah, about how available will would a vaccine like that be to? Moderna, I don't know. Yeah. You know, it's like the people, there has to be a collective decision that met, well, now we know that, that, vac that viruses don't have national boundaries. So are we going to address them on their own terms, which is global? Yeah. Um, and that type of the global response, and you've brought that up before, um, about not recognizing the government, not recognizing, um, well, they recognize that AIDS is a global health crisis, but it was not equal with access. Um, that that's happening, like you said, with COVID-19. And I know that uh, Stephanie, who had weighed in, um, said that she just had read Rap Bohemia for the third time. So she's a major fan of yours. Um, and she would be curious to hear your thoughts on Rap Bohemia for um, when you had written it and then a generation later, like how you know, maybe weighing in about when you were writing it during the AIDS crisis and now how it might register. Well, I, say, I think yeah. rats have done a lot better than Bohemia. I mean, the city is so rat infested, it's outrageous. And gentrification, unfortunately, limits Bohemia. Um, you know, the idea of providing a refuge for people who are different and think differently and that they can come to and contribute and create new global ideas for the world, political and art ideas, that's very hard when you have gentrification. So I think that the rats are winning, I would say. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm gonna have some nightmares tonight. Um, but 
Do you think that a lot of what excites me about this type of opportunity to talk with you, Sarah, is it is so multi-generational and it's important, I think, for me to just bear witness to what do I need to do better to listen as someone born in 1992 or someone born into an identity of coming out in high school and thinking, you know, I was that person who thought gay marriage was going to just unlock the door and I wouldn't have to face a type of homophobia, but I've learned, you know, homophobic discourse exists in many different ways, but also how to use my especially white identity to and cisgender identity to speak out for the transgender community, people of color who are queer. Um, do you think that more the space is being made for this type of conversation to exist? Well, I think it's really about action. You know, who in your world is asking for a concrete action that they need for their survival? And are you willing to be uncomfortable to help them or to stand with them, even if it means not making yourself the center? Yeah. Well, and it seems like there are definitely some you think, um, especially when they have power, the center is what they want. Like that's sometimes they're being driven that way because. Well, well we live in a city where people, there's so many homeless people where the whole public sector is in deterioration. And we've had these jokers from mayor and governor who have screwed over public education. And, you know, it's like, so what happens when you're being asked to give up something? And how are you dealing with that in your various communities, your physical community, your neighborhood, your building, your colleagues, your school community? How are, you know, what are you willing to change? Yeah. And, it seems like um, there are some who are willing to decenter themselves, but you know it takes work. Like you're and well, listening. One of the takeaways of the story of ACT UP is that um, change is made through coalition, and the, the, those coalitions need to be driven by the people whose lives are at stake. Yeah. You know, so ACT UP was not bureaucratic and it was not theoretical. Uh, people with AIDS were, had no treatments, the clock was ticking, they had very concrete needs that they articulated out of their own lived experience, and it was the responsibility of the movement to effectively go towards those needs. And that is one of the reasons that it was successful. Yeah. Well, and I know our time is coming to a close. Um, and I could talk, there's so many questions I have about Larry Kramer and even Eve Sedgwick, who, when I learned that she was involved in ACT UP. Um, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, um, in Epistemology of the Closet, she has an opening about ACT UP, like when she had gone, I think, to do some um, resistance, um, some protesting with ACT UP. Um, but, and that was a model for me as an academic of, oh, you can insert your own experiences and that's okay to not distance yourself from your reader. Because um, you I think it's important. Have you read Poor Queer Studies by Matt Grimm? 
I know Matt Brim, but no, I do have to read Poor Queer Studies. I'm going to add it to my list. Okay. It's an amazing book for people who are teaching in public schools. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. So definitely we'll add that as a link along with all of your ovoir, Sarah. Um, But yeah, maybe just rounding out, do you think that, um, you know, where do you see ACT UP going right now? I mean, is there a you know, are you still involved with the organization? No, I'm not. And right now I think that the issues around HIV are really part of the larger healthcare crisis of this country and are linked to the to that, which are part of the healthcare crisis of the world. You know, the, the role that that grassroots movement played at that time is different than the role that it would play today, although it still exists, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, thank you for your time. I mean, I can't encourage everyone who's listening enough to purchase your book. They need to purchase your book. And also it is just quite a testament of, I think, your expertise of oral history um, and how to do oral history methodology. Um, It's wonderful. So I just appreciate so much, Sarah, that you came out with this text, but I also need to read more of Sarah's experimental work. That's on my to-do list. Okay. Um, Well, thank you, Andrew, and thank you, Erica. Thank you so much. I hope you have a good rest of your day. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. As we say here at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, let's put a bookmark in this. The Ivory Tower Boiler Room team consists of me, Andrew Rimby, Executive Director, our Editor-in-Chief, Adam Katz, our Media Director, Erica Grume, our Chief Contributor, Mary DePippi, and our Marketing Assistant, Jaren Usta. We thank you all for listening, so please make sure that you like, subscribe, and share the podcast, review it, Um, And if you can, please do donate to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Uh, We are all volunteers here, and we do rely on donations to help build and grow the community. It helps me continue to get really exciting content and book really creative guests. So allowing for the creative writers to come, the academic writers, um, the performers to come, anyone who's literary and artistic. It just helps me continue to expand this public humanities vision. Um, Also make sure that you do follow us on Instagram, follow us on Twitter, and you can even join our Facebook group, all at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Thank you to Words Matter Bookstore, our sponsor. And we always are looking for interview requests or creative writing requests. Um, If you want to share your writing, if you think that you would be a great fit to be interviewed on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, please email us, ivorytowerboilerroom at gmail.com.